Welcome, everyone, to In-House Roundhouse. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a business litigator here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Remember to listen to In-House Roundhouse for quick tips on legal issues. And today I wanted to talk about the manufacturing sector. Womblebond Dickinson is organized around sectors, and we're privileged today to have two guests, Peter Snaith from the United Kingdom and Melinda Davis-Lux, uh, who is here in the United States, in Charlotte and in Greenville, South Carolina, um, who are our sector heads. And I thought it would be useful to talk to folks about the manufacturing sector, what's going on in the sector, why our firm has decided to go to market in a sector format and for manufacturing sector. So thank you both for being with us. You're welcome. Good. Thanks for having us, Mark. All right. No, excited to have you here. Um, Peter, we were talking earlier today a little bit about the idea of a manufacturing sector, and I know you've been working for a long time in that sector. Tell us a little bit about your own experience and I guess how it ties into the to the firm's manufacturing okay. sector. Okay. Um, I suppose in terms of my background, I, I qualified as a lawyer through the usual channels of being a trainee solicitor in private practice, and then shortly after that, I moved into industry to work for ICI PLC, uh, which at the time was one of the biggest chemical companies in the world. Uh, and that's so working in industry, then you, you, you get much closer to the businesses. So you actually, you see it from the business side rather than from the lawyer's side. Um, and being immersed in those industries. I'm, I, I'm, not, a, I'm not a chemist. I, I have a chemistry O-level, which is a fairly basic qualification in the UK. But it's my experience in that industry is more around having worked for a number of chemical companies and having seen what they do well and having seen what they do not so well. And chemical companies require all, all manner of the services which we provide, uh, all the way through from supply chain contracts, M&A, real estate, regulatory, IP. Uh, so it's seeing that from, as I say, from an internal side of things. And then we then, with that understanding of the industry, we can support clients better so that we, we get the job right legally, but also relevant um, to, and in line with the client's objectives. Gotcha. And that makes sense for other listeners in the podcast. We've talked a lot about the fact that, you know, today's lawyer is more than just a particular practitioner in an area, right? I think the in-house counsel that are listening to the podcast know that they want folks that understand the business and can provide some of that business advice. And you've obviously been, yeah. been doing that. Melinda, well, tell us a little bit about your own, I guess, background and experience and your connection to the manufacturing sector. Sure, sure. Well, I have an MBA and I have an interest in operations and the operational side of manufacturing manufacturing. And I've worked for a long time with um, manufacturers, primarily because in the Southeast, that sector is so strong. And I happen to concentrate on mergers and acquisitions, but over the years have spent a lot of time with companies in the Southeast and the upstate of South Carolina and Charlotte and, and elsewhere down towards Atlanta um, in industrials, in um, chemicals, in automotive are very strong. But there's kind of a broad array of manufacturing companies in the Southeast. So I've really concentrated my practice on that. And over the years, you just learn more about the more about the industry and then um, tend to do more work with the industry, which is very strong where, where we work. It makes the job more interesting rather than just doing the legal work. We can all do contracts. We can all do real estate transactions. But if you understand the business and you understand the context, then actually you're not just advising in a vacuum. So it, does, it brings the job to life as well. And it means the client gets a better outcome as well. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And as you've noted, there's really a lot of different legal disciplines that tie into manufacturing. And I know we were reviewing some of those. Peter and Melinda, I'll invite you both to talk about some of the, the multidisciplinary approach that goes in to form the experience of our manufacturing sector. Okay. Um, I guess um, we approach clients 
in different ways and they approach us in different ways that a client won't necessarily look to lawyers until they have a particular issue, whereas we try and be more proactive and think about the issues before they arise for them. My, my own personal area is commercial contracts, so as I say, supply chain and customer contracts, product development agreements. But the needs go much further than that into the operational side, so health and safety, environmental, um, regulatory is a big issue for the manufacturing sector. Um, and then when transactions come along, either M&A or litigation or a big sale of some real estate comes, then they need all manner of the services we can provide. I think employment and intellectual property are usually pretty strong too. And of course, it depends on the manufacturer and the, um, you know, whether you're in textiles or advanced advanced materials, what the what the needs might be, and whether they're growing or what kind of challenges they're they're facing. But they ha- all have some things in common. And so we we try to do plant tours. We try to spend time learning about those businesses, and then as um, and think proactively about what kinds of needs might might arise over time. It was interesting, uh, Melinda and I were talking yesterday that sometimes clients come to us straight away with an M&A transaction and they want help with the M&A transaction. And then that brings in the specialisms from the employment lawyers or the contract lawyers. But then other times we don't expect to be invited to do a, a large deal for a client who doesn't know us. So so we get involved with the client and their business from a day-to-day, looking after some of the more mundane, the more basic low-value contracts and arrangements. And then as we get to understand the business, they get to understand us and trust us more than they invite us to do the legal tra- the the, uh, the M&A as well. well. I think that's great. To me, one of the great strengths of the sector approach is you really are bringing in that multidisciplinary approach so that a client can get what they need from one firm that knows the industry and can address it and bring in a yeah. lot of different specialists. Yeah. And we is, can connect them is, to one another too. Right. So yeah, that, yeah. that happens all up. Yeah. Quite often is the question is, and it might be a labor question or Salesforce question of um, employment. Well, how do we, how do other manufacturers reimburse mileage for this? Very specific questions. But what are the best practices, and what are what are you seeing out in the market? Which we can answer because there are going to be some things that are are more specific practices around manufacturing than other other sectors. And one of the great things, having having worked in private practice and in house, and then come back to private practice, a lot of except for the very large corporations, um, general counsel have to try and do a, a wide range of things. You have to try to cover the employment aspects. You have to try and cover the litigation aspects or the IP aspects. Um, and what I've enjoyed moving back to private practice is that I can I can focus on what my strengths are and when a client needs some assistance with some intellectual property or with a regulatory issue, I can call on colleagues who deal with that day in, day out. So I don't have to try and be a, a, um, a jack of all trades, for example. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I thought we'd spend a few minutes talking about some of the current issues that are facing folks that are in the manufacturing sector. I know we can't listen to the news uh, now without hearing something about trade, either trade wars with China or impact of Brexit or other issues. And obviously, a lot of the manufacturing clients are concerned about trade, either because that's where their raw materials are coming from, or they are, in fact, an exporter. Um, As folks that work in the sector, I'd be interested in your take on any particular looming trade issues or how you've seen other clients' needs be addressed in that. You know, and I know trade's a broad topic, Mm -hmm. but uh, some idea of uh, maybe issues that our listeners may want to be thinking about. Or, or concerns that are on the horizon in that area? It's, I mean, it's not so much an issue in terms of, well, I can't offer a solution to it, but the key issue around Brexit for the UK, for example, is the uncertainty. Um, nobody knows what is going to happen, uh, so you can't plan for it. And that means that people aren't making the investment because there's no long-term clarity around whether the UK is a good place to invest in or not. So at the moment, all we can try and do is encourage businesses to carry on as, as normal or as normal as they can do. 
the UK government reassures um, everybody that they will try and, and ensure a smooth Brexit with a transitional arrangement, which which is involves not too much upheaval. But if that doesn't happen, then well, until there is some clarity around that, then some businesses will look elsewhere to invest. And I think from a U.S. perspective, uncertainty is the biggest challenge as well. And we're hearing from clients that when you think about, you know, the uncertainty around NAFTA right now and in China as well, I mean, there's all sorts of debates, policy debates that you can engage in. But really, from a business perspective, the companies, the global companies are making investment decisions with 5, 10, 15-year horizons, and they're making them now, um, and they've already made them. So any change disrupts that significantly. So I think that's the biggest concern that our clients are telling us they have is the uncertainty yeah. in the US as well. But I think one thing which Bumblebond Dickinson can offer a bit of a solution to UK businesses, certainly. Um, yes, there is uncertainty about Europe, and but hopefully it will be possible to carry on trading with uh, the EU because that's our biggest single market. But the, um, the US is the biggest single country um, which purchases um, goods and services from the UK. But there is a nervousness about amongst UK businesses to break into the new market. It's an enormous, there's enormous potential, but, but trying to access that market, trying to find customers, trying to find advisors is very difficult. Um, but now with our combination and with a presence here in the US, we can link up um, businesses who are either already trading and want to do it better or they want to find their first entry point, then we can provide that with tax lawyers and regulatory lawyers and corporate lawyers who can make sure that their first step into the new market is as um, well managed as possible. Now, I think that's a great point. And I know that's something that our firm has done with a lot of other clients. And it's really, I'm, I'm amazed at the range of services. I know things like uh, one of our partners, John Hunter, and the work he does with economic development and tax incentives. And there's the real estate implications. There's the regulatory concerns. There's environmental uh, issues and tax implications. And it is, it's a complicated mm-hmm. issue, but certainly uh, it's remarkable when you look at the number of folks. I'm, I'm active in the British American business. Uh, Business yeah. Club here, and it's uh, you see how many folks just here in Charlotte um, are actually UK companies doing business here. Uh, I think a lot of people don't appreciate it, and it is it's it's a big market and a growing yeah. market. The scale of the opportunity is truly enormous, and I didn't appreciate that until coming over here. You know, been here several times now. Um, there is just so much more going on, and every opportunity is several times bigger than the equivalent opportunity back in the UK. So, um, if, we, if we can try and introduce businesses into that and support them in the process, then. Um, it's good for business, it's good for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And that flows the other direction as well, because, of course, all the global manufacturers, as you can debate whether the manufacturing, you know, and jobs are in China or wherever they are, but there's always a need to be close to the customer. So there's there's the incentives. You know, we have some advantages in the U.S. in terms of um, incentive structures that um, governments can provide, but also just being close to a, a large market here. And then, of course, all the global companies headquartered in the U.S. are looking at emerging markets, so um, going in the other direction as well. So you just see a tremendous amount of activity. And a lot of the big corporates in the U.K. are no longer British-owned, so there's a lot of American ownership of large large businesses in the U.K., so um, that's the opportunity again for we can... Well, if there's, if, there's a, if there's a U.S. business looking to acquire or expand in the U.K., then, um, then we can provide the support on the ground the other way. And, and one thing our listeners may not know in terms of Womble Bond Dickinson is not only are we transatlantic with obviously being in the UK, but there's alliances with other 
countries like Germany. Can you tell us a little bit about if, if we've got clients that are truly global in nature and they're not only interested in the UK, but they want to go into the EU and, and other places, are there resources that Womble Bond Certainly. Dickinson can offer? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I try not to focus too heavily on chemicals as what well. we've done a, a lot of both in the US and in the UK. But the main chemical markets for manufacturers is the US um, and within mainland Europe. And within Europe, Germany is far and away the biggest um, manufacturing country in chemicals. And so our relationship with Redica, they have a strong chemicals practice. They're located nearby to industry there. So if you're looking to trade um, with those industries, then we can provide support both in the UK and in the US and in Germany with, with lawyers who know the industry, but they know the industry in their relevant jurisdictions. Great. And I think one thing we're finding is, I mean, all, you're right, all of the, our global companies need access and our U.S.-based companies that may be selling abroad, which most of them are, have questions and issues that arise around the world. And one benefit of, you know, the, the business is moving at lightning speed now, but a benefit of that, despite the challenges, is that you can, we do have lawyers around the globe through Lex Monday, through other alliances with whom we've worked on with clients and to whom we can reach out. And you pretty much get responses, you know, almost instantaneously or while you're sleeping. And you, we do have those relationships. And it's, of course, very easy nowadays to, to communicate very quickly and get answers and, and connect. And we have those relationships in place to be able to be um, immediately responsive because major things do, do happen that require attention with global companies. And they reach out to us all the time for that. And manufacturing is a truly global industry, and businesses very very few manufacturers focus on one on one jurisdiction alone. So, as lawyers, we need to be able. To, we can give a lot of common sense, practical advice, which is well, we'll be good advice under any jurisdiction. Um, but then we can reach out and contact local counsel when you need to know for certain that the, the issues are are legally correct for the countries you're operating in. I wanted to talk for a minute. You know, I think for a while everyone viewed the manufacturing sector as in decline, and I think people are realizing that's not not really the case. And um, certainly, the industry 4.0 is in the news and a buzzword. Um, you know, some of our listeners that are already in industry, you know, may know about that. But I think it'd be useful to have a little discussion about what is industry 4.0, and you know, what do we see, and potentially in terms of legal issues, contract issues, and stuff arising out of these developments. Okay. I mean, it's probably helpful because people think, well, how did we get to the fourth industrial revolution? What was what were the first, second, and third? So, so briefly, just to touch on on what they were, it may help. Um, in very simple terms, the first industrial revolution was the use of steam or water power to help perform industrial operations, and then that became which actually happened in the UK, right? That's And then then they moved moving more onto assembly lines and more structured processes and procedures, and the third generation of of robotics, um, so they've been around for a while now. But the latest change is the digitization of all of that and the connection of all of that. So you have connected factories where one machine is speaking to another uh, machine, which is speaking to, to the business operational software. So everything is connected. Um, you can see where um, stocks and inventories are. You can see where machinery needs repairing and replacing. So it's the opportunities are enormous in terms of productivity improvements. But that does bring with it challenges in terms of if things don't go quite according to plan, then the the risks are there. So we need to help businesses to manage those risks. Yeah. I think that you know one of the industry 4.0 is really exciting because in the U.S. and in other countries in the U.K. there's an advantage in the 
R&D sector and um, that we have, you know, while manufacturing itself as a percentage of GDP over the last couple of decades has declined and now leveled off, there is a tremendous amount of research and development associated with manufacturing. And so things like digitalization and the data collection and use of artificial intelligence, those are things that will increase productivity and increase our advantages in terms of having strong manufacturers. And that's happening in the U.S. and the U.K. It's a a trade-off between there's a lot to be said for using an old piece of machinery which has never broken down and which you can maintain yourself and keep it running, but obviously it's not as, as efficient, it's not as productive. But there's been enormous advances in the tech sector, and it's, it's great the fact that now this, that those two sectors can combine, so technology can be introduced into manufacturing so that both businesses can prosper. Right. And then where we come in, you know, we'll be coming in too, is where when the pace of technology is increasing and you have all companies have all their data digitalized and collected that creates vulnerabilities so things like data privacy and cybersecurity and other issues that are thought of maybe not traditionally thought of in the manufacturing sectors are now huge concerns that that will need to be addressed as things evolve yeah right. well, the new the new EU regulations coming into force in the UK on the 25th of May so GDPR is um it's not as much of a concern for a manufacturing company as it is for a heavily consumer-facing in- industry, but the businesses do still hold a lot of personal data, and that but they, the regulations are very prescriptive in terms of what, what you need to do. So it's another area of compliance which industry can't afford to overlook. Now, I think that's a good point. And listeners may recall we did a whole episode on data security, actually had a client talking about what happened um, when they suffered a hack and the, the data be, you know, was basically held ransom, a ransom attack. And it is, it's scary and there's a lot of things to consider. So they may want to listen to that. And obviously, if you, as you move to industry 4.0, uh, that risk seems ever higher, right? If you're dependent on that communication and dependent on the data, and it gets lost or taken uh, or, you know, stolen by a competitor or interfered with by, by somebody else, it seems like there's a lot of risk there yeah. that needs to be mitigated. Yeah, so cybersecurity is definitely a, a, a major focus just to, just to protect um, the business. If you make the investment, you need to know that it's, uh, it's ring-fenced and uh, isn't open to, open to attack. That's great. Yeah. Pete, yeah, Melinda. And it will, be, it will be interesting to see, too, how Industry 4.0 affects the dynamics of the sector itself and the supply chain because you know, collecting all of the data and going through the digitalization process is expensive and time-consuming, and the larger companies are, are doing that um, and making advancements. But then as you have cybersecurity risk and other risks, that then they're going to need to address it and impose you know, some sort of requirements or understanding around their vendors because all of the systems will, will will tie together. And so that's going to put pressure on some of the smaller manufacturers, tier ones, tiers twos down the line and um, to keep up with the pace of that and those kinds of investments that haven't always been willing to make. So it will trickle down through all sizes of companies. Are, are you seeing the theft of intellectual property either by a competitor or a disgruntled employee taking things like software codes, customer lists? Are those something that that is facing folks in the manufacturing sector? It happens, but I wouldn't say it, it's, it's not a um, something which we're asked to help out with on a regular basis. You can't legislate for a disgruntled employee um, wanting to try and take things away. So it, when it, when it does happen, then yes, there are there are things which we can do to make sure that that individual is aware of his responsibilities and his obligations but it's it's the world hasn't changed a great deal in terms of the legal steps that you need to take it's far more the practical steps in terms of how you store your data what data you store 
uh, making sure that it's that you know, you don't not storing too much or for too long as well. Gotcha, great. You also um, mentioned the term uh, in an earlier conversation, servitization. And that's something that I know is taking place some, but it might be of interest, again, maybe to some that have not explored that aspect of manufacturing or, or aren't familiar with it. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what that term means and, and trends in that area? Okay. It's, I suppose it's, it's, it's turning the, moving the manufacturing industry more into the service sector, I guess. So rather than simply selling a, an expensive piece of equipment or some expensive services like lighting, for example, for a building, the manufacturer doesn't just sell that product as a one-off transaction and never see the customer again. They want to try and keep that relationship sticky, so they want to be able to have more touch points. So you have it's it's the world has sort of moved to follow more the way that photocopying industry has gone. So I mean that way you've been paying per copy for for years and years. But this is the example. A good example is the sale of an industrial drill. These days you move from selling drills, you're selling holes. So there may be a um, as a nominal cost for the lease of the equipment, um, but then you pay per hole, and the manufacturer is paying, is, is, sorry, is generating revenue from the supplying the equipment and maintaining the equipment, and every time that equipment is used, and also there are services aligned to that in terms of maintenance, so the manufacturer can then identify when that equipment needs to come offline, so you can schedule your shutdowns far easier. Um, so it's a whole service. It's it's manufacturing as a service rather than just um, supply and and leave it at that. I mean, I think it's particularly interesting. Obviously, in the consumer side, we've been seeing that shift, right? You get, you know, you subscribe to Spotify instead of owning music. You subscribe to Netflix instead of going and buying movies. Um, now people are talking about car subscription services where you can either rent a car, just use it for the day. And of course, you have ride sharing apps. So I, I do think it's fascinating to me to see what's happening to consumers in that part of our lives where it's a focus on using rather than owning and actually trying to translate that into into the manufacturing sector. I think that's a, that's an exciting thing, and I imagine that's a trend that's still got a ways to to go in, in, in the manufacturing side. I think there's a lot of exciting things yeah. that can happen there. If you think of automotive and the future of cars, and we expect, you know, with the Internet of Things, we're expecting that maybe you rent a car, maybe you continue to own a car, but either way, it's connected. You want your car to do everything for you. So the, the car of the future is, well, it's driving you, but it's also, you know, playing your music and connecting you to your computer and doing, so it's a, um, it may look different like, will you? Which way will you sit? What will the interior look like? Why do you need a passenger seat? So there's really interesting mm. things for any kind of manufacturing product that you can think of when you add the Internet of Things and the kind of connectivity we we're going to expect. I suppose servitization also makes expensive products more more accessible. So in the same way as more and more of us now are leasing cars rather than buying cars because we don't have the disposable income to just make that that big single outlay. Manufacturers of lighting, for example, for office lighting, it's a very high capital cost, which businesses, once that money's gone, once it's spent, but if they can lease all their lighting, then it's a steadier outflow, but at a lower level than it would be for the initial capital sum. Yeah. Now, that's interesting. Well, and, and I'm sure you folks have already seen it, that that will change the nature of your traditional contract, right? You go, you're, you know, it's not going to be a normal sale contract or a normal UCC analysis because you've got this service component and a lot of the legal structure that's been built around a traditional transaction where title passes and and goods move you know that may be a different a different world if you're if you're leasing all the lighting or you're leasing the drill you know it's a service contract 
it's a lease, it's some new contract form. It may not be, you know, the standard, you know, here's here's title, here's bill of lading that, you yeah. know, what I would think of as kind of a traditional, oh, here's a piece of industrial equipment, you own it now. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it creates an ongoing relationship rather than a one-off sale and maybe a warranty which would last for a period of time. And that's it done. There is an ongoing relationship where the supplier needs to know what its obligations are and where they start and finish. And the customer needs to know what they can expect and what their rights are if things aren't done properly. So they're the same issues. And we do a lot of we do a lot of work for services companies. So it's it's applying our expertise for service companies to what we, um, manufacturers need to do for them. And it seems to me, too, there's this connection to the gig economy and the idea that you're not going to have traditional employees the new, you know, 4.0 manufacturing is also not that employee intensive, mm-hmm. right? It's all data driven right. and the key employees are going to be your programmers and your analytic folks and the, the ones making sure the robots are talking to the other machines. Those people may or may not be traditional employees. They may have unusual relationships. A lot of the intellectual property software development work is being done by contracted folks or subcontractors or other stuff. So I think it it invites restructuring not only of the factory floor, but the whole relationship with your own employees mm-hmm. and, and yeah. who's doing it too. That's right. And there's concern around, are our machines going to replace human beings? And does that mean that there's going to, the labor market's going to be impacted? They're valid concerns, but I think there's also the the flip side is that the, the jobs will just change and they will improve. So uh, they talk about how machines will be used more to do jobs, which are, I think it's dirty, dull, and, or dangerous to do or difficult so mm-hmm. it's those sort of things where so a mundane job which can be done much better um, a repetitive job with the same process time and time again it's not interesting for a human being to deal with it but a robot can do that much better and then the human being can actually do can manage that so it's it, it should be up, but then the challenge comes with the need to upskill your employees because everyone needs to know how to work with or to program or to manage machines right now, interesting, in, interesting area. Um, we're about out of time, but I, I want to see if either of you have anything else that you may want to share with folks in the in the manufacturing sector or share about Womblebond Dickinson's manufacturing group. Uh, no, I think I just wanted to pick up on a point which you mentioned. Um, there's a perception that the manufacturing industry um, is in decline, and that's far from the truth. As it's a, you know, it's a it's a thriving industry. Um, we happen to be located. Our offices are sort of in the heart of some uh, major manufacturing regions, and it's vital that people appreciate that it's that it has a strong future, so that people want to work in it and they realise that the value that the industry can bring for for the local communities as well. Yeah, I think exactly that. That that there's a lot going on in manufacturing that's exciting and um, that will transform the companies with which we work and will. Um, there will be continued globalization and that we're well positioned having had so much experience with manufacturing companies and now um, working with them across the U.S. and the U.K. and in other um, countries globally to be able to to help them and anticipate that growth and the needs that come from it. Terrific. Yep. Good thoughts. All right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, hey, cool. Peter and Melinda. This is terrific. I enjoyed having you here. Uh, you've been listening to the In-House Roundhouse. Uh, if you haven't already, I invite you to go to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe. Uh, we do hope to bring you some more future episodes, including further discussions of some of our sector focus. Uh, and we were talking about immigration. And I'm hoping to do a future episode with my partner, Jennifer Corey, talking about immigration and maybe how some of our clients can help boost that uh, labor issue in a address that shortage. Uh, So we appreciate your listening. Thank you both for being here and look forward to seeing you at the next station. Thank you very much. Thank you.